Before I jump into this morning's uh, sermon, I just uh, wanted to highlight something. This past weekend, we had uh, the Alberta Mennonite Brethren Con- Convention, the annual convention, here uh, at SunWest. And, uh, and when I opened the weekend, I said, you know, for the last 23 years, we have mooched off of every other church in this province, and it was awesome to be able to host uh, uh, people from part of our larger family of churches, and we just had a great weekend of hearing reports from across Canada, across Alberta, uh, what God is up to, um, and, uh, and open our eyes a little bit that, that we are part of a much bigger picture beyond just our church, uh, and really encouraged by that. And thrilled to be able to bless uh, other uh, churches and leaders from across the province and the country. Uh, if you were involved in volunteering this weekend, would you mind just standing up? Because uh, it took a whole crew to, to make that happen. If you came, you served coffee, you helped set up, you, uh, any of those things, just stand up. Uh, you led worship. You, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I, I heard uh, just thrilling reports from everybody uh, that was here about how awesome our Sun Westers were, and uh, I was very proud uh, to be part of uh, this local family. Uh, so if you haven't left for junior high conversations yet, I think you should have, but uh, if you haven't left, you're out the door uh, to the right. And Cal, if you can switch over to the, uh, the PowerPoint file, that would be great. Okay, so long story short, we are covering the whole biblical story in 13 weeks. Uh, I have about 15 minutes uh, to get you through this much of the biblical story, okay? So, uh, needless to say, I'm going to leave out a few things, but I'll I'll try and do my best to move quickly and just give you uh, a very uh, fast overview and then a little bit of an application. And so we're in week seven of 13 weeks, and uh, last week we looked at the beginning of Israel's monarchy, right? So God... Uh, God wanted a theocracy. He, he didn't want, he wanted Israel to be set apart, to be different than all the other nations. And Israel basically said, we want what our friends have. Uh, and, and luckily that was only a problem for a couple thousand years ago. We're way beyond that now. We don't covet anything of our friends anymore. Uh, but at this time, they struggled with that. They just wanted what their neighbors had. And God, being a relational God who created free beings to walk in relationship with him, said, it's not my plan A. But I'll work with it. If that's what you really want, I'll work with it. But there, I'm going to let you know there's probably going to be some, conf- some consequences to that decision. He gave them some warnings, and they chose to walk in that way anyways. And there might be moments where you and I have chosen something that's not in God's plan A. In fact, I think all of you have. I know that I have. This wasn't God's plan A, it wasn't his desire to you, but, it, but that doesn't mean that he walks out of covenant relationship with you or stops inviting you, uh, that God is a redemptive God, which means that he can redeem anything, any bad choice that you've made, any bad thing that's happened to you, uh, he can actually turn it and use it in some miraculous way, not that he causes or that he wanted it, not that it was his plan A, but regardless of what route our lives have taken, he can actually redeem it and reuse it. And that's the beautiful thing of the biblical story, and we see that over and over and over again. And, and here we see it on kind of a macro scale where Israel says, God, we're going to go with a plan B. God says, okay. And, then, and it's kind of from that point that Israel's story uh, takes a turn. And we talked about Saul, we talked about David, um, and we talked about Absalom and how that, the tragic ending of that. And so Absalom never really took the throne, but David's son Solomon did 
for 39 years. And that's kind of what leads us up to a significant point in Israel's history. And the reason that this history that I'm going to briefly describe to you is important is because if you don't actually understand it or see this, you're you're not going to know what to do with half of half of what I just kind of flipped through in front of your Bible, Uh, because it's it's in the context of this story uh, that all that stuff was written. And so, right here in Israel's history, Israel moves from God's plan or from God's plan A to their plan B, and then their plan B doesn't work out, much like God warned them. And then they go on to plan C and D, and we we keep seeing it kind of go on. What happens is Israel splits in two at this point in the story. Two kingdoms. We see Jeroboam, who uh, would be the first king in the the northern kingdom of Israel. And so there would be ten tribes that would be in the northern kingdom. I'll show you that slide in a second. And then Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, uh, who was the first king in the the southern kingdom, uh, which was Judah and Benjamin. Two other slides, or tribes, that uh, is often just referred to as Judah, but it's Judah and Benjamin together. And so here you see a little bit of a picture of the northern, northern kingdom. You know, there's ten tribes there that were part of the northern kingdom, and then the southern kingdom, uh, the two tribes that kind of split off. And so for the rest of your Old Testament narrative, it's important that you know that these two realities never come back together. And in fact, if, if you... If you were to watch what happens in the biblical story, in, 17, in 721, uh, there's destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians, and they take captive all those ten tribes of Israel and carry them off into Assyria. And the tragic thing is that is actually the end of the biblical, in the biblical story, the end of the story for those ten tribes. And so the northern kingdom actually ceases to exist as the story goes on. And the rest of the biblical story actually comes out of the, south, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, which would be exiled uh, by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. So 150 years later, after the Syrians took the uh, northern kingdom off into captivity, never to return, uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken captive by the Babylonians, and uh, they would be held uh, captive for a number of years. And so you see here uh, kind of the timeline. We see Saul, David, Solomon, those kings, and then the split uh, at this point in the story in 922 B.C. And then the northern kingdom ceases to exist as the southern kingdom continues on. So what happened in this time was that there was a time of the prophets And most of the biblical prophets during the last days of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah were constantly calling them back to covenant faithfulness with God. And that's why the sermon's title is The Warning, because there's these prophetic voices throughout these hundreds of years calling Israel back to the covenant relationship that God had initiated with them. Now, what would you and I do without warnings in our life? Don't overheat. Stay hydrated. Wear a helmet. Bring your phone so you can phone me when you break your limb. Wear protective eyewear. We get warnings with sounds and sirens and ambulances, police trucks. We get get parents that say things like, don't do that with your face because if you keep doing that, it's going to stay that way forever. (laughs) And sometimes we get visual warnings around us where this warning says, unsafe for bicycle travel. 
But then you got to sign next to it. You know, so we get confused at warnings. What? What? Or this one. No swimming if you can't swim. Thanks, tips. Uh, that's... Uh, I wasn't sure what the Hebrew, whatever that was, said, but uh, thanks for translating that for me. Please be safe. Do not stand, sit, climb, or lean on zoo fences. If you fa- fall, the animals could eat you, and that might make them sick. So I, I'm, I'm thrilled that they're concerned about the animals. Reminds me of a guy in the zoo a few years back who ignored a sign like that, and uh, his arm was uh, food for the tiger in the Calgary Zoo. Do any of you guys remember that story? Yeah. Um, This one was interesting. Uh, Poles are for your safety, not for your latest routine. So that's some kind of transit bus or train. I guess they have a a pandemic of pole dancers in that city. Uh, Do not breathe air underwater. It's a good word of warning. This is a nice one. Warning, rattlesnakes and poison oak in this area, right in front of the children's playground. That's a strategic place to build a playground that you want no kids to play on. Here's a good caution on a shirt. Do not iron shirt, or do not iron while wearing shirt. Yeah, that's, a, that's probably a good word of advice. Touching wires causes instant death. $200 fine. <laughs> As if dying wasn't enough. We're just going to, we, we got to get you one more time. And then I, I thought this was a good one. I'm assuming a Canadian built the sign. I, <laughs> no tobogganing permitted at this facility. And then, sorry. Was, I'm sorry. We, we have warnings all the time, all around us. And, and what is it about warnings in our life? What do they do for us? They're for our safety. They're for our pr- productivity. They're actually for life itself. You know, I, my, my kids, they... They chase and try and beat up on each other all the time. It's probably just my kids. But, you know, three boys, and they're running around. They're outside, and they always run in the house. They're out on the trampoline. Uh, every single time, they'll run in the house chasing each other. And the first kid in the door will slam the door behind him, trying to close the door before his brothers get in. I don't know why it's a thing. And I, every single time, I'm like, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, don't do it. Don't slam the door. It's, you know, it's not good for the door. Someone's going to get hurt. Uh, last weekend... Uh, my oldest son comes running in the house, goes to slam the door behind his brothers, and gets his finger caught in the door that he slammed behind the door, and it just like starts bl- bursting open in blood, and then my gran- his grandparents are out, and they're like, oh, Joel, and I'm just, I'm just looking at him, told you so. <laughs> Don't come to me for sympathy. I warned you over and over. I was like, I took, I took that teaching moment like a good pastor, and I just, I just went to town on it. I told you not to do that. And he did. And so last week we talked about the kingdom of kings. We looked at Saul, David, Absalom, and we're looking at these warnings. And, and it's, the warnings are coming from the prophets. And we see in the Old Testament that there was three offices that were anointed for ministry. The, the prophet, the priest, and then eventually the king. And so we talked about kings last week. And, and this week we're talking about prophets, the prophetic a ministry in the Old Testament. So God gave Israel kings, even though it wasn't his plan A, to rule, to reflect God's reign on earth. And if you read the biblical story, they did that very, very poorly. God gave Israel priests, and priests were there to go to God on behalf of the people. 
They would talk to God on behalf of the people. They would offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And then uh, God appointed prophets to actually go to people on behalf of God. So those are kind of the three anointed offices that we see in the, in the Old Testament story. Now the prophets gave warnings, encouragement, challenges. The primary duty was to speak God's message to God's people in the historical context of that moment. This divinely chosen spokesperson gave messages that were sometimes oral. Sometimes they would do visual, like prophetic drama. They would act, act things out. And sometimes it was written. And if you go through your Bible, you'll notice you'll, all these names of guys that you can't pronounce. And you have the major prophets, guys like Jeremiah and Isaiah, Ezekiel. And it's not like they were in the major leagues and you had the minor league prophets. It's just that those books are really big. So uh, we have really big books from some of those prophets. We have minor prophets, smaller books, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, etc. And that makes up that, 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 those pages that I showed you, that makes up uh, all the pages I showed you. And so when, something like that. Uh, so when you read, the, often when people are reading the Bible, they're getting confused because we read it chronologically, but the Bible actually wasn't organized chronologically. The prophetic voices that you read at the end of your Old Testament correspond with the history books before the prophetic books. And so as you understand the history that I showed you, now you can actually figure out uh, what uh, those prophets were saying and why they're saying them to who they were saying them, at what point in Israel's history were they talking the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. Uh, but those prophets were speaking messages to that context. And so they would speak in warnings, and they would say things like, if you do this, then you will do this. This is kind of the prophetic formula. If you keep doing this, then you're going to do this. If you act like this, if you worship other gods, you're going to get taken into captivity. You're going to be judged. You're, you'll be punished. And this was the, these were prophetic warnings. But we see the same kind of equation in prophetic encouragements. If you do this, if you follow God's commands, if you kind of align yourself, if you come back to the covenant, if you, if you turn from uh, worshiping other gods and come back to your God, then God will bless you. Then, right? So we see this formula both in warning and in encouragement. And often the prophets were bringing both of these. Right, so we often think prophets, it was about predicting the future. It was actually much more about calling the people back to covenant relationship with God and saying, if you continue this way, this is where this is going. But if you were to come back and go this way, this is the life that is waiting for you. So we have prophets throughout the Old Testament giving warnings, encouragements, invitations to live in alignment with God. And so don't overthink this. It looks really confusing, but I'm just throwing this up there to show you you see the northern prophets there. You see the southern prophets. And those prophets, uh, at those points in history, were speaking to those kings uh, either in the northern or the southern kingdoms. So it kind of gives you a picture of that communication that's happening in your Old Testament. And you'll see by far the weightiness of those prophetic books are towards the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. There's different personalities. There's Amos. He was a farmer. Uh, there was Isaiah. He was eloquent and sophisticated. He was speaking to the southern uh, kingdom. There was Daniel. You know stories about Daniel in the lion's den, and uh, his prophetic response is in, is in um, her articulation is in response to the Babylonian exile. You have Jeremiah, and, uh, and who's quite insecure, uh, but God uses him anyways. And then you have Elijah, who's like the quintessential Old Testament uh, prophet, and he was a trash talker, and you can read some uh, awesome uh, stories of Elijah, and we'll come back to him in a moment. But 
all these different personalities, people located uh, in the northern southern kingdoms, speaking on behalf of God to his people, giving warnings and encouragements, and inviting them to choose. When you read the long story short book, there's a phrase in there in the section on warning that says, as prophetic messages express judgment and grace, future hope and present warning, wrath and mercy. I'll read that again. Prophetic messages express judgment and grace, future hope and present warning, wrath and mercy. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like parenting. Doesn't it? Sounds like parenting. You are saying, here's what you need to do to get right. You didn't do it, well, let's try this again. You can, you don't run in the door, because if you run in the door, you do this. But if you don't run in the door, uh, then you're not going to get hurt. Don't fight your brothers. This is why. You know, it's, it, it's, 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 it reads like a parent trying to communicate to their kids. But here in the biblical story, it's more than just getting your finger caught in the door. It's like the choices are between life and death. Have you remembered the law? They're, they're calling people back to the law. The law of Moses. How's that going with the law? Have you remembered it? Are you thinking about it? Are you, setting, are you honoring your parents? Are you setting aside a day during your week to honor God? Are you coveting your neighbor's stuff? This is what the prophets did. And so it reads like parenting. And I can relate to that. I mean, I, I feel like I'm this prophetic voice to my kids every day. And, uh, you know, I have one son... And uh, I won't name his name, but he's my youngest. Uh, he's, so, oh, his name's right there on the screen for you. Hey. So, so, my wife, Lisa, he, she's got the laws in the house, right? And we have on our fridge, we have three charts, this beautiful system. You know, Monday through Sunday, here are your chores. And, uh, and so every day our kids get up out of bed and they do their chores and they check off their chores and there's consequences for not doing their chores. They don't get their allowance. And there are certain chores that my kids like to do and there are certain chores they don't. Well, I don't know if they like to do anything. But some chores they choose to do and some chores that they don't really like doing. Silas hates garbages. He won't do them. Uh, in fact, he knows the consequence of not doing garbages. And some days he's just not in the mood to do them. And we'll, we'll get up in the morning, he's like, I'm not doing garbages right from the get-go. I was like, yes, you are. I was like, I know the consequences, and I'll just deal with the consequences. And, and this, this certain day, he was so adamant that he's not going to do chores, he went and he circled just so his mom could see, this is the chore I chose not to do. <laughs> Bring your wrath, mom. Bring your wrath. So sometimes consequences are not enough to impact our behavior. We see warning after warning in the Old Testament. Here's the consequences. If you do this, this is going to happen to you. And over and over again, we see this repeated action, like, like my kids that say, I, I'm, I'm aware of the consequences, but that's not enough to change my behavior. Uh, in fact, when I talk to Silas, I actually find out he doesn't do garbages because he's afraid of the dark. Um, and there's garbages at different corners in the houses that he has to go to that no, nobody's in, and he has to go by himself. And um, anyway, so you get into the story, and if I say, hey, I'll go do it with you, he's like, oh, okay. I, I can do that then. But the consequences themselves are not enough to limit the behavior. And, and, and we see this truth throughout the biblical story. 
Warnings are good. They're preemptive strikes of a loving God. Let me say that again. Warnings are preemptive strikes of a loving God. The people who warn you are the people that care about you. If a person doesn't care, they'll just let you go off the cliff. They'll let you just keep doing what you're doing. Some of you didn't have parents that warned you. They were more interested in being their friend than they were in being your friend than they were in actually giving you life-protecting warnings. In fact, you've probably grown up, and as you've gotten older, you've wondered to yourself, why didn't my parents give me a curfew? Why didn't my parents protect me from that? Why did they let me watch these movies? And you thought it was awesome as a kid. It was like, I got the greatest parents. They let me do whatever I want. I can throw parties. I can uh, watch whatever I want. And then as you grow older as, a, as an adult, then you started to wonder, where were those boundaries and rules in my life? Because as you grow up, you start to recognize that the warnings uh, actually come from a place of love and protection. And maybe some of you have had to forgive your own parents because they didn't actually warn you and create boundaries in your life that you needed as a child growing up. Here's a few warnings that Jesus gives. I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith for you will be expelled from the synagogues. And the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service to God. This is because they have never known the Father or me. Yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. A few other warnings Jesus gives. Timothy, or Paul gives us to Timothy. Paul, guard what God has entrusted to you. Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Some people have wandered from the faith by following such foolishness. Our warnings call us back from wandering. They call us back. I'm prone to wander. In Matthew, Jesus says this. He's he's grieving. He's saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. So the people God created for himself were on the run. They wanted to be like their neighbors. And when you and I want to be like the people around us, we go where they go. We listen to what they listen to. We watch what they watch. We do what they do. And pretty soon we begin to think like they think. But God wants us to think like he thinks. God actually set us aside to be in relationship with him. And when I start to wander, you know, if we listen hard enough, you can hear God's voice calling you back. And it's a warning, yes, but it's not a warning just about hey, avoid the consequences. It's actually a warning that invites us into relationship. Like sometimes we think that God's this bad guy because he he gives these rules and these warnings. It's kind of like that little kid that says, my my parents don't really love me because they have have all these rules. You know, coming back to my son's ass, he will say, you don't love me. And I, you, you don't let me do what I want. My friends get to watch this. My, my friends do this, and I don't get to do this. And I said, your friends' parents don't love them as much as I love you. <laughs> but, but I actually, I mean, I, I can't comment on how much their parents, the, his friends' parents love him. Uh, but from my standpoint, I say that with 100% conviction and truth that, that I love you enough to not just be your best friend, but actually say the things that are difficult for you to hear. Not just acquiesce when you're upset. 
Biblical warnings are an invitation to relationship. They're a protection because we have a God that loves us and desires to be in relationship with us. And this is the grief we see on Jesus when he's when he's lamenting here about Jerusalem, that he's this is what he's wanted, this relationship that he's wanted, but you wouldn't let me. The prophetic voice has always been a relational voice. But how was it that the Israelites understood to be in a relationship with God? They understood that to be in relationship, they were in a relationship with God by the following the law. If you obey the law, then you will be in a relationship. But we learn in the New Testament that the law, we can't actually earn our way into a relationship with God. The law doesn't work. And, and Paul talks about how the law condemns, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And there's this new revelation in the New Testament that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, not by works. And so... The prophetic voice actually begins to change as Scripture unfolds because it's not necessarily an invitation to behavioral change, although behavioral change is a result. It's an invitation to relationship that has been made available to you and I through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection, which we're going to celebrate next weekend. And so the prophetic voice actually calls us to Jesus, to the cross, to to life, and it's from that life, from that transformation that the law couldn't bring, that the prophets kept calling people back to the law, and Israel got frustrated because they realized as hard as they tried to follow the law, they couldn't follow the law, and God says, well, I have a solution for you, and the whole reason I gave you the law was so that you would realize that you are incapable of living in this type of behavior all on your own, and you need help, you need a Messiah, you need a Savior, and that's why I've sent my son Jesus. And so now we call people to the feet of Jesus. The last passage I want to focus on here is uh, in Mark. Sort of feels like a skipping rock. You've got to kind of do that when you're covering 700 pages of biblical literature. Uh, six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed. And his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than, uh, than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah, everybody say Elijah. And Moses, say Moses, appeared and began talking with Jesus. So Elijah, remember the quintessential prophet, Moses, the lawgiver, representing your Old Testament, which is, which is uh, summarized as the law and the prophets. When you read that in the New Testament, that's what they're referring to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets, Elijah, Moses, the prophet, the priest, Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters for memorials, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. I say stupid stuff all the time because I don't know what else to say. Uh, but here's the, our human, this is just a, kind of a footnote. When we have an experience, uh, this, you know, there's this amazing God experience that is happening here with, with Peter and uh, some of the other disciples. Peter wants to institutionalize it. If we can just set up a shelter, if we could like fix this and institutionalize it, then, you know, then, you know, this is, this is a pretty significant moment. Um, I don't know if, and I, I think I referred to this a couple years ago, I don't know if we can, we, every generation needs fresh encounters with the living God. We can't just live off of what God did in the past. And here we see Peter trying to institutionalize this moment. Uh, But that's not actually my main point. Then then a cloud overshadowed them, 
And a voice from the cloud said, this is my dear, dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly then they looked around. Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus. And this is a powerful, mysterious moment. It's recorded in Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, the Gospels. And scholars, like, just talk about what this, what this could mean. I, I think, at the very least, what is happening in this moment is... There is a change. There, there's this, you know, how Jesus changes everything. And, and, and Peter and the disciples wanted to add Jesus to everything else that they already knew. In fact, what might be going on in their mind is this. In the Old Testament, we had prophets, priests, kings. The king, over the course of all that exile that we looked about in the history, they were looking for a deliverer because, you know, the northern kingdom went to be captives with the Assyrians, the southern kingdoms were captive with the Babylonians, and they were waiting for a king, a Messiah, someone that would come and actually rescue them, bring about Israel again, reestablish the kingdom of Israel, and so they were waiting for this Messiah. They thought that Jesus was this Messiah. Jesus was this Messiah, but what we see in Mark chapter 9 Disciples thought, you know, Elijah, the prophet, you have Moses, the priest, and we have Jesus, the Messiah, the king. And we're just going to add Jesus in. We'll make up three tents, one for each of you. But then the cloud comes, and then Elijah and Moses disappear. And, and why is this important? Because Messiah wasn't just a king. The Messiah was going to be the culmination of everything that the prophetic and priestly and kingly offices of the Old Testament were actually pointing to all along. In fact, Messiah actually means anointed one. And so when we say Jesus is the Messiah, we are saying that Jesus is the culmination of all of history. Everything that every prophetic voice was pointing towards is actually fulfilled in Jesus. Everything that the priests were trying to do in bringing people to God is actually fulfilled in Jesus, that we don't need any other sacrificial system, we don't need anybody else, that Jesus has fulfilled that whole intent, that the kingship this deliverance, this rescuing, this saving that Israel had been longing for throughout all of its history is fulfilled in Jesus. And so when the cloud disappears, when we begin to see clearly again, when we, when we get through the whole, the whole Old Testament text and we see Jesus face to face, all of these other images, characters, leaders, stories actually disappear in the presence of Jesus because he is the Messiah. The anointed one. And so what does this mean? It means that I am giving a prophetic word this morning. A word of warning and a word of encouragement. But it is a word of invitation to relationship. That if you continue, and, and, I, and I know that you already know what this means in your heart because uh, I believe the Holy Spirit's already been speaking to you. If you continue in a certain way, the Holy Spirit has warned you that it's life-taking. That there's consequences. In fact, some of you are maybe living in consequences because of continued decisions that you've made. But the Holy Spirit is also inviting you, is warning you, but he's inviting you and encouraging you to relationship. And what, what does that mean? It means actually coming to Jesus. It means recognizing that the voice that's calling you is the voice of Jesus. It means being made right with God but knowing that you actually can't be made right with God on your own and that the, the priestly atonement, making one with God that needs to happen, has actually happened already in the person of Jesus. 
You need rescuing. You need delivering. And there's a prophetic voice that's calling out to you this morning that's saying, if that's you, look to Jesus because he's the Messiah, he's the king. And so I don't know what the warning or encouragement is that needs to be applied in your life this morning, but I do know that Jesus is the response, that Jesus is God's response to us. Whatever your journey, whatever your captivity, wherever you feel stuck, and this isn't me saying like Jesus is just this magic pill. No, it's hard work. Then it happens in community. We, we worship God in community. We journey together in community. But it starts with actually bending your knee, making Jesus Lord of your life, choosing not to make Jesus one thing in your life among other things because uh, he's not one thing among other things. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. It's actually letting everything in your life fade into the background and say, I'm going to put my focus, my faith, my trust, my weight, my worship into Jesus. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. And it's through him that we are actually given the gift of the Holy Spirit, his spirit in us, alive in us, that transforms us from the inside out. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as the worship team comes out. That was more than 15 minutes. I'm going to invite our prayer folks forward um, to the front and to the, even on the sides as well. And I, uh, and I our, our prayer folks have been trained and uh, uh, I trust them and I, I, they often pray for me. And, and often when you go for prayer, they actually might give a prophetic word to you. Uh, and actually, those prophetic words are meant to encourage you. And, and per- perhaps uh, you need to take the invitation outside of your head this morning and actually move it into action and say, I am actually going to allow someone to speak prophetically into my life. Uh, and because I know them, I know that what they're going to do as they pray for you, they're going to encourage you. They're going to edify, edify you. And, and the Bible says that the, the whole gift, actually, of the prophetic is actually to build up and to encourage the body of Christ. And so you're going to be encouraged. And so I would invite you, if you've never even done that before, to actually just go and receive prayer. You don't even need to say anything. They, would just, they, they, they could just pray for you. But if you do have something to share with them, they'd love to hear that and pray for those things as well. So you can come up during worship, uh, if you like, or even after worship. Uh, they'll be around uh, following the service. Um, and uh, because of the time, Dan, I'm just going to say, if you can close it after you lead the final song, that'd be great. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is uh, the perfectly anointed one, that he is fully prophet, fully priest, fully king, that everything we see in the, in the biblical story is actually just the shadow of the real thing, as it says in Hebrews. And thank you, in Jesus, we have no more shadows that we can see clearly, that the cloud has actually dissipated. And Lord, I pray that you would save us from making Jesus one thing among others. Would you even now reveal in our hearts the, the things, the gods, the materialism, the people, the, uh, the work, the, fam- the, things, the family, the things that we've actually put beside you. And Jesus, we say you are the one. You are the Messiah. You are, everything else actually is behind you, and we bow our knee to you, King of kings, Lord of lords.
But I pray that you would encourage those this morning that need encouragement. And they would hear the call, the whisper back into relationship. Not the warning that just ends in condemnation, but just the conviction because you care for them and love them. And you're the parent that's not actually just going to let them do what they want. And we say, well, other people can do whatever they want. And we hear your whisper that says, well, other people don't love you like I love you. I'm not content just to leave you where you are. So come. Jesus' name.